Okay, we're talking about a cool lady today. Yeah, and you're going to captain us through it. You're the main presenter. We're talking about Alexandra Kollontai. Yes. So right up top, just going to kind of go over the various sources I used. One was obviously good old Wikipedia for some basic info and dates. But a large part was taken from this documentary called A Wave of Passion, The Life of Alexandra Kolontai. It's actually available for free on Vimeo. Highly recommend. It's not too long, maybe 45 minutes. Has interviews with lots of biographers of hers. It also includes this one guy who like every time he came on was just like talking shit about like Lenin and stuff. So like there's that. Uh, Robert Service. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, he's a he's um historian uh, of the Soviet Union or so uh, they had a term for that back in the day. I thought they had something like Sovietology or something weird like that. Ooh. Or they would you know give it a fancy name because it's like oh you're you're studying the strange world of the Soviets, <laughs> the alien like world. Egyptology or something. But, yeah, yeah. But no, I've heard of him. I didn't. I've never really read his stuff, so I didn't know like kind of his angle. But I imagined. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just pretty much every time he showed up, he was just like, "Yeah, Stalin was a or Lenin was power hungry and a dictator," and I'm like, "Okay, uh, well. <laughs> yeah, take that with a grain of salt." Um, they also have interviews though with her grandson, which I thought that was interesting. He was around. Oh, okay, I knew she had. Uh, sort of a, a famous composer relative of some sort. Yeah, that was her nephew. Okay. But yeah, overall, great documentary. I really recommend it. I, I ended up watching it twice just so I could take more notes, but um, that's how chock full of goodness it was. Has tons of footage and photography from the era. The music is great. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. Um, and I also, uh, for the theory portion, checked out Marxist.org and checked out her list of works there. So you're well-read now. Yeah, I think so, basically. I I read a few things. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Who is this lady? Why are we talking about her? She was a key player in the Russian Revolution in 1917, and before, and after. She did a fuck ton of things. She was a revolutionary, a diplomat, um, and a really influential writer and speaker as well. Uh, she was known as being a really good public speaker. She served as People's Commissar for Welfare and was the only female cabinet member in Lenin's government and later became uh, one of the first women to serve as an ambassador. Uh, not great on the representation numbers there with one <laughs> out of however many. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's definitely going to be a factor in how she was perceived. That's uh, our modern interpretation, though. One was probably better than the bourgeois cabinets at the time. It was definitely better. Like, she was definitely on the cutting edge in that sense. So first off, she was born. Confirmed. <laughs> Gotta do that. <laughs> Gotta do that first. Born March 31st, 1872. She is an Aries, and I believe it. She's quite a fierce lady. All right. Fellow Aries, but mm-hmm. from the actually correct Aries people. <laughs> Yes, correctly typed. She uh, was the daughter of this imperial Russian army general, kind of an aristocratic upbringing. So another class trader. Love those guys. Fancy pants. Yeah, she had a very, you know, cushy life. Uh, This was her mother's second marriage, and she was the only child from their union. Uh, So she was like 
you know, the youngest and she was fairly spoiled. She did well in school and wanted to continue at university. But her mother was like, you're a lady. Ladies don't need to do that. <laughs> and also there's so many radicals at the universities. I would rather you didn't. Mm-hmm. So she was only allowed to take an exam to become a teacher. And even then her mom was like, you work <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> her mom was just going to what? Marry her off or something? Yes. In fact, her older sister got married off uh, at 19 to a dude who was like almost 70. And Alexander was like, oh, no, no, thanks, man. So when she like started becoming of age, like she was 19, she was like, I'm going to go like just fall in love with some guy and piss off my parents. And she did. So (laughs) she married uh, her cousin, uh, the son of an exiled Polish revolutionary, Vladimir Kolontai. And he was basically, you know, just poor enough to piss off her mom Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, make it kind of scandalous. And uh, she ended up having a son, Mikhail, the following year. So, yeah, they they settle into St. Petersburg and Alexandra starts writing short stories and becomes pretty popular. Vladimir was a factory inspector, kind of a liberal guy, a liberal bourgeoisie situation. And sometimes she would accompany him on his inspections of factories. And she was like, so appalled by the working standards. She was, I think, I don't know, this is one of the earliest instances of her being like, what the fuck? You know, like, this is not okay. Kind of radicalizes her some. I think so. Because shortly after that, she starts volunteering at the literacy library. uh, Which, as we all know, the cool thing about libraries and books and book clubs is they can also be a front for underground socialist movements those pesky <laughs> communists always trying to teach people to read that's why they're banning books right because of all of my secret communist book clubs i'm starting <laughs> she got really into this uh our girl jumps in with both feet uh she begins work as a courier transporting illegal writings so she's just Ooh. like i'm fucking here for it let's yeah. do it okay so she's smuggling to go in the han solo route Yes, yes. And she's also, like, doing the literacy work, too. But, you know, there's a little bit of uh, subterfuge on the side. (laughs) Yeah. In 1898, she divorces her husband and leaves her son. And she's like, "Uh, hey, I'm really into this new shit, Marxism. I'm going to go study that in Switzerland later. (laughs) Damn. And they were like, like, no, we don't want to do that. That sucks. I mean, I guess. I guess they're just like, "Uh, I would like to stay here. So, peace. Yeah. I wonder, too, like, she writes a lot. I read this really interesting short story of hers called A Great Love, and it was the chapter The Loves of Three Generations. And it was this interesting short story about, like, these women going through the revolution and how differently they approached relationships from, like, the kind of bourgeoisie grandmother character to the mother who, you know, had these affairs that, like, really tore her apart in a lot of ways. Like she invested a lot of emotional energy into them. And then the daughter who's like, I'm just going to fuck where I can. Cause like, I'm not, I don't have time for this shit. I'm doing revolutionary stuff. So like, I think that's another great reading to read. I didn't include it in my uh, like theory stuff. Cause it's fiction, but like, if you want to kind of get a grasp on like her approach to relationships and like, she's often cited as this, this advocate for free love. And I think that's not quite an accurate characterization I, th- I think it's more like she's very practical and very aware of the restraints and constraints that that women have on them and in, in like heterosexual relationships under capitalism so i think she just is very much like i'm gonna do what i want to do it's gonna piss some people off like 
I'm I, she is looking for that that great love. Like I think she falls more in line with that mother character, but she like also recognizes like this isn't healthy for me. Like I need to recommit myself to the movement. Like she does that several times in her life. Okay, interesting. So like a real revolutionary in that sense of able to make the personal sacrifices. Yeah, I mean she does it quite a bit. Like I mean she has several relationships. <laughs> I think it's funny like how much they write about her relationships just I think it's something about her that like people tend to get hung up on, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So she goes off to study, but she comes back, let's see, seven years later, 1905. Uh, she comes back to St. Petersburg just in time to see Bloody Sunday, the bad one. Mm, yeah. They, there's a great quote from her writings uh, upon seeing this, uh, talking about the czar They've killed something more, much more. They've killed superstition, the faith of the people that they could ever achieve justice from the czar. This was in the 1905 revolution, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that one, the great dress rehearsal, the czar's imperial guard goes and guns down a bunch of unarmed demonstrators led by some priest, Georgi Capone. And yeah, they killed... Like hundreds of people. Well, you know, you had to stop these uh, workers. They were doing such risky <laughs> things as delivering a petition to the czar, calling for reforms. And, you know, these reforms were uh, earth shattering. There were limitations on state officials' power, improvements to working conditions and hours, and the introduction of a national parliament. So real bullshit. Wow. Real crazy shit. Can we please have some democracy? I'm going to shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> blam, blam, blam. Ugh. But, I mean, you know, people wonder why did it pop off in Russia? It's because... That was the response, yeah. To pretty reasonable shit. Right. To liberal democratic re requests. So people were like, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's some bullshit. Ugh. She was already radical, but, you know, this definitely firms up her resolve. Over the next few years, she just is, like, full-on in the movement, becoming a highly wanted agitator, constantly dodging arrest, until finally she gets exiled in 1908, because she published Finland and Socialism, which was an article that called for the Finnish people to rise up against the Russian Empire, and, like, yeah, I think that'll get you exiled from the Russian Empire. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it'll do the trick. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I guess the U.S. kind of lets things like that happen. You know, it's just like, oh, if you wrote a book that was like, Florida should be its own country. You know, <laughs> I, they'd probably allow that, but only because of the laugh factor. Yeah, you wouldn't get charged with like treason or anything like that. You yeah. have to like take action for it, I guess. Right. You'd have to go also to start doing militias or <laughs> start getting a whole bunch of guns. Books or something. Yeah. <laughs> So she pieces out. She's like, I'm going to go to Germany for a while. Uh, she takes on a series of younger lovers. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and she gets like quite famous for this. Uh, she, she writes a lot about love and sexuality, kind of like I mentioned earlier. You know, she was like, I'm going to choose work over love. But she still like advocates for like sex. She's like, that's fucking fine. Mm -hmm. But like she wants to relegate romance to one aspect of, of her life and not have that be the sole goal for women. Okay, so look, she'll do that too, but that's not what she's about. Yes, and it's interesting because, you know, when I was reading her her theory, I was like, yeah, this is very similar stuff to Marx and Engels. You know, she writes about the oppression of women and how it's basically slavery in many ways. They're subjugated to their husband. But because she was a woman talking about sex and, like, having sex, she's the one that got called out for it. Uh, she 
got targeted by religious newspapers uh, and just like total scandal. You know, like who the fuck is this lady talking about sex? That's not okay. Whereas you're saying her commentary is by and large just in line with like Marxist thinking. I, I really, I don't think there's anything that, that different. I mean, maybe she goes into more detail and I think she has more of a, a pressing concern with women's issues but like really like when you read her her writings her central thesis is you know I, I it was kind of funny i was telling kyle i'm like i got to a point where i had read enough of her work that i got to like some of the last ones i'm like yeah yeah i know she's just gonna say women mode of production blah 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 <laughs> <laughs> so that made me feel good like i've absorbed it but yeah that's basically her thing is like there, there's a very famous quote of her saying something that effective like you can't have socialism without feminism and you can't have feminism without socialism so i can't remember the exact quote i should probably look it up but whatever i got a lot of other quotes to get through so (laughs) (laughs) but she was basically saying like women cannot thrive and have good lives until we change the mode of production like we are being crushed by capitalism in that sense yeah so and that's like pretty basic marxism i would say Mm -hmm. i'll say so it's interesting though that she like you said she gets the the hammer of blame from everyone Yes, like she got the scandal for it. She got the, oh, you're focusing on this too much kind of language thrown at her a lot. And then also the weird focus on the dramatics of her relationship versus... Mm-hmm. They're like, look at this free love advocate. <laughs> oh, yeah. People don't write about every person that, you know, male socialists banged. Like, Right? <laughs> that's not <laughs> the focus. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, this controversy was good for her. She became super popular. She was speaking for audiences of, like, thousands. And every socialist organization wanted her to speak because she was so popular. Like, hey, come on over. Yeah. At one point, she even, she shares a house with Lenin, his wife, and his mistress, I guess, in Paris. I don't have details on this. So, like, I guess Lenin was chill. Yeah, they were, like, either very good friends or a mistress. Mm. And there's... okay. I get. I think it's one of those things where no one has proof. Yeah. Is this that one lady? What's her name? I've seen her name around. Inessa Armand? Yes, that's the name. Yeah. And she did a lot of work with Kolontai as well. And was like a Bolshevik in her own right, you know. Totally. But again, like, how are they characterized? <laughs> Interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so she's she's living with them for a while, and which you think like, oh, cool. They're probably having some, some cool guy conversations, right? Uh, but at the time he, you know, he was a Bolshevik and she was a Menshevik at the time. So, like, they were not buds yet. <laughs> okay. So, this was before before the revolution, but after the Bolshevik and Menshevik, like, factions emerged. Yes. This okay. is, like, as those factions are starting to form. Okay. And then 1914 comes along. World War One breaks out. Our favorite. Favorite of the wars. <laughs> All-time <laughs> yeah. best war. Uh, great historical event there five stars uh would do again and we did so (laughs) (laughs) that was humanity's review Uh, of world war (laughs) one can't wait for another one (laughs) uh so kolontai was in germany at the time with her son and she was like hiding from this like slaughter of russians that was happening in in this town she was in uh you know there's this very obviously nationalist wave happening and she felt super betrayed by the socialist parties who are backing the war. Basically, she kind of had to go on the run. Uh, She sends her son to the U.S. to avoid conscription. And she 
gets thrown out by several governments who don't want her. Uh, the Danish social democrats and the Swedish authorities are like, nah, sorry, you can't come here. You're very anti-war. Too cool for those countries. Yeah, yeah. Like, sorry, I have cool opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but Norway takes her in. Uh, so good job, Norway. I, I got to say, I went there one time. It was pretty cool. <laughs> I wish I had known. I could have, like, found some cool Kolontai landmarks, probably. Yeah, she spent like, quite a lot of time there. Where she hung out or whatever. Yeah. So her anti-war experience definitely brought her closer to Lenin's side uh, because he was also anti-war. And so she joins the Bolsheviks. She's like, hey, I, I get it. I see what y'all are doing. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, not everybody makes that transition, you know? Yeah. What I, I really like about her is she's quite steadfast in her devotion to Lenin and the Bolsheviks. She's just like, yeah, this this is what I'm about now. Like She's very open to like... Okay, I thought that thing, that was maybe not, okay, I'm going to think this thing now. Like, she kind of moves forward. A good quality in a revolutionary. Always be willing to toss your mistakes aside and change, you know? Yeah. And I would say there's, there's a double-edged sword to that that we'll get kind of towards the end of her life. But we'll, we'll see. We'll okay. see what we think about All it. Right. So, joins up with the Bolsheviks. She starts distributing this pamphlet against the war. And the documentary I was watching was characterizing it as, like, the theory was all Lenin, but it was her words and writing, you know, that made it kind of pop. Ah. Yeah, she's a very good writer. Like, I thought she was very accessible, uh, but still a little poetic. So it's, like, nice to read. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And I don't enjoy a lot of theory. So <laughs> <laughs> um, she even travels to the United States to urge them to stay out of the war. That one didn't work. But, you know, good try. Good try. Well, when did she go? That might have worked for a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me she see. goes like in 1917. It's like, between 14 and 17. Uh, she goes one week before they declare war. 1915, she took a four and a half month speaking tour. Okay, so maybe she did some good. You know, it took him a while to recover mm-hmm. from her stinging words before they were finally like, okay, she's been gone long enough. Let's go to war. Yeah. Oh, man, she got like imprisoned in germany while she was there that sucks yeah not on my bucket list imprisoned <laughs> in germany in in uh 1914 not a great time to be imprisoned. yeah in i was germany. gonna say just imprisoned anywhere <laughs> in but, general but yeah it's not a good one uh here's the deal she's out there she's talking she's talking traveling writing but she gets recalled back to europe in 1917 because things are popping off it's 1917. That's a big year. <laughs> is uh, Did anyone recall her or is she just like, oh, shit? It sounds like Lenin called her and was like, hey, we fucking need you. Mm-hmm. I don't know specifically if he did that, but like that was kind of how it was like spoken about. The party. The party. Yeah. Okay. She, she kind of serves as a go between between uh, Lenin and, and the rest of the party because he's in exile right now. So she's like, I'll fucking smuggle some shit for you. So okay. she goes back to Norway and smuggles her pamphlets into Russia and these pamphlets, like, there's a direct connection, pretty much, between her pamphlets encouraging women to organize against the Tsar and the demonstration on International Women's Day. Like, her writing kind of popped that off. Oh, that's central. That's such a big part of the story. Uh, and even their banners uh, were carrying slogans, which were written by Kolontai, denouncing, you know, the slavery of women. Like, from the striking workers then, or? Yes, yes. Okay. From the women in the demonstrations and stuff. Yeah. So, she... Gets into Russia in March 1917. She is pumped. She's like, we're fucking doing this. 
She becomes a member of the executive committee of the Petrograd Soviet and works on the women's newspaper Rabotnitsa. Uh, she does a lot of writings from there. A lot of her articles come from that. Uh, but things aren't great. Uh, as we know, after the 1917 revolution, the provisional government comes in and these fuckers suck, aren't doing shit. <laughs> also, they're all dudes. So, like, what happened to the crowds of women being like, hey, we want fucking things that are working? Yeah. You know, like, shit's bad. And they're like, okay, well, <laughs> we'll do none of those things. Yeah. And also, we're all dudes. We're going to try to make some small reforms <laughs> when we get to it. And we're still also going to do the war. I don't know. Why not? We need to. <laughs> While we're here. Can't just lose. <laughs> Bolsheviks would prove they're wrong there. Actually, we can just lose. We could just not, guys. <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> it's not easy. People are going to be really mad at us when we do that, but yeah. it's cool. <laughs> we're going to get run <laughs> over, but it'll work. So Lenin, still in exile, asks Kolontai to purchase arms for him and agitate for revolution amongst the Bolsheviks. Like she's like his right hand lady. That's cool. Just, Hey, we need guns. Like (laughs) shit is getting crazy. Get us some guns. Don't tell anybody, but tell people that maybe we should start fighting. Like I'm just imagining her and I'm sure she was very like more capable than this, but I'm just imagining her being like, you want me to do what? Like, like I have no idea how to do that, but okay. (laughs) What, yeah, what about me makes you think I am a gun runner? Like, sure. I mean, I'm like from an aristocratic background and I'm mostly a writer, but I'll get right on that, sir. I previously, every time they've been meeting, she's got like six bandoliers strapped to her. She's <laughs> she like just, smoking she just holding an AK. Energy. She's like got a big combat knife she's like picking her teeth with or something. She's just like, I don't know, you seem like the type. She's always talking about her high scores at target practice. Yeah. Thought you were a hardened uh, mercenary. <laughs> you just look like a man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but yeah, she was like super close with him and in terms of organizing and, and even in political cartoons, she would be called Leninka, which was like the Lenin the diminutive woman. Diminutive Lenin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and they were like these hilarious cartoons. I couldn't find them online. They were on the documentary uh, of like Lenin in a dress, basically, and, and labeling it as Kolontai. Like she was just Lenin in drag, basically. Basically, yeah. They're like, yeah, same person. What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> Tits, I guess. Yeah, they're just, uh, it's just disguise. Kind of funny, though, going back to the, going back to the gun running thing. You do have like your <laughs> bank robber friend, Stalin. You, yeah, wouldn't you ask him? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I've got a basement full of guns. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> like, no, the aristocrat lady, she can do it. Maybe, like, she asked Stalin, like, hey, you seem kind of bad. You you know, I can get those. Yeah. <laughs> I need help. This, this assignment's kind of hard. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, but, yeah, she was uh, kind of speaking for him, you know, on his behalf a lot. Uh, she was the only major leader in Petrograd who agreed with his famous April theses right away. Um, I believe these are the ones that are like, hey, we need to do some shit right now. Like, let's fight. Yeah, yeah, we need to do the damn thing. Uh, and a lot of people were like, no, 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 I don't want to. And she's like, Lena said it, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, well, people were still sort of being... Uh, disappointed but patient with the provisional government and wanting the constituent assembly to meet to like fix things in a parliamentary fashion and Lenin was just sort of like this is wasting time like it's not going to work I could not find exactly 
uh, the source for this next anecdote from the film. Uh, but they tell a great story that in May of 1917, uh, Lenin comes back to Russia. He's about to give this big speech and turns around and begs Kolontai to give the speech instead. Uh-huh. Uh, he's like, dude, you're way better at this than me. Like, will you please fucking do this? And she kills it. Oh, hell yeah. Like, how many people don't know this woman's name, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. But she was like <laughs> number two for Lenin. Basically, in a lot of ways, it sounded like it. Okay. She gets arrested in the July uprising. You know, if you're a revolutionary, sometimes you get arrested. Yeah, mo- I mean, there were a lot of uh, Bolsheviks arrested in that Lenin happened to escape, but only barely. Oh, that's right, that's right. Uh, she gets released in September, and she is elected to the Central Committee due to her widespread popularity. And gun running. <laughs> and cool guns that she got, I guess. I assume she did a good job at that. I didn't follow up on that If you voted for her uh, to be on the Central Committee, you got, like, a rifle. You got a gun. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that platform would do terrifyingly well here. (laughs) Fuck for me, get a gun. Yeah. Uh, uh, But not everyone was into her. There were still a lot of people, a lot of newspapers who were not fans. Uh, One newspaper at the time wrote, and and this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the characterization of this woman, because it's hilarious. Mm. Quote, it's plain that her revolutionary enthusiasm is nothing but a gratification of her sexual nymphomania. Whoa. In spite of her numerous husbands, she is not yet satisfied. She seeks new forms of sexual sadism. What the fuck are we talking about, guys? She's just a communist because she's horny. She's just too horny for communism. Yeah, oh. not not a real communist. Only in it for to increase her body count, I guess. I guess she's just trying to fuck all the comrades. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, like, that's the kind of shit she was dealing with, of, like, do you even go here? <laughs> yeah, that's so weird. But it's also, I mean, you know, so weird from a modern lens, I guess, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, the way, like, women are viewed in public is still not great, so... No, yeah. it's it's true, it's just we're able to see those things as more egregious now. I yeah, think. that wouldn't be a widestream, or not widestream, mainstream kind of view. Yeah, only, like... On the left, only in really shitty circles, I feel like. Oh, God, yeah. Which do exist, I don't, you know, but like, mm-hmm. it's just, I don't think it's the main thing on the left, but back then, it probably would have been closer to the main thing, and then you would have had kind of the radicals that would be like, no, but like <laughs> equality, you know, it's seriously like Marx and Engels did right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Could we please? October Revolution time. We are going to take down the provisional government. You know the story. It's cool. It's great. If you don't know the story, we could tell it to you. But we've done it already, so go listen to it. (laughs) Go back, please, to the archives. Hopefully our sound quality was okay. I I can't guarantee it. Sometimes I used to select the wrong mic on Audacity back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Kolontai is appointed to the Minister of Social Welfare, and there's a lot of work to do in that position. You You have a Everything from peasant women coming in, complaining about requisitions, you have soldiers asking about pensions, like, you know, this is a chaotic time and people need a lot of social welfare. Yeah. And the government is, doesn't have a lot of resources to pull it off. Like they're in crisis mode pretty much a hundred percent of the time. I mean, you were saying the requisitions part, if it's during this time, then it's like they're, they're trying to feed 
people in the city. So they're just going out and taking food from people in the countryside. Uh, pretty controversial, made a lot of people mad, but, you know, was able to succeed at a school of feeding people in, in the cities. But yeah, you know, you would have peasants come up and be like, what the fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. Like she told, tells a story of, of this wheel of cheese she was sent one time by the Dutch who were just like, we think you're cool. Yeah. And so she brings it to the office and then she gets called away for something and she comes back and it's all gone because everyone has shared it out, you know, and like several guards have had some and she's, she's just like laughs about it. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what happens. And like, Lennon was like, you didn't even get to try a piece. And she's like, no, dude, like it was, it was just big it, wheel of cheese day. It was Blake Walker Cheese Day. Uh, it was really interesting the way she writes about Lennon in, in this and a couple of other writings. It's very casual. Just like, yeah, we're just like chilling at a desk, like getting shit done. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's something about it made me feel like very in the place. It was cool. Yeah. That's how I've always encountered stories of uh, Trotsky and Lennon and Stalin and all those guys during the time is they're very uh, equal to each other. They're just they're just talking it out and yelling at each other. It's chaos, but like a cool chaos. Yeah, I just think your bourgeois historians will be like, we'll just focus on the bloodshed of the revolution and say, well, these people who did this. Lenin climbed up on a pile of bones and used it as a throne. Yeah, Everyone they did it for this. pleasure or some sort of, you know, they, they, they liked being able to do bad things to people <laughs> they were nasty um and so obviously in their in- interactions with people you can imagine them as like dour and just you know evil type you mm-hmm. know it's all dark lit rooms and they're just mm-hmm, how can i kill more people you know mustache stroking yeah and you know you wouldn't dare you know everyone's just an underling like oh yes sir yes sir. you know like mm-hmm and that's just not how it is in their interactions in the politburo and everything especially in those early days yeah, yeah, those early days look so fascinating. Like, fly on the wall, please. Like, put <laughs> me there. That would be so interesting. Yeah. Kolontai drafts a lot of laws in this time. Um, she drafts marriage and divorce laws. Um, she sets up uh, child care centers and, I don't know how to say this word, creches? Creches, I think so, yeah. Uh, okay. Like a baby Places care center or something. Babies and children, yeah. <laughs> Was she the one who wrote the divorce by mail? Uh, law, mm, the postcard I'm not sure divorce. About that. I don't think so. I didn't catch that. If she did, that one's a good if one. If I Google divorce by mail, my ads are going to be like, "Hello, <laughs> do you need a lawyer?" Yeah, <laughs> Kyle's going to see that in my history. And be like, "Do you have something to tell me?" Can you divorce by mail in Texas? <laughs> uh, let's see. Mm, I'm not seeing that as as something that she did. I I know I don't know the specifics of the laws that she did. Okay. That sounds like her. Unless she really didn't like the postal system for some reason. <laughs> Fuck that. I hate letters. No, she wrote a lot of letters. I think she likes the postal system. <laughs> you know, she's writing about equal rights rights for women and and trying to enshrine that in law. Um but her male colleagues are like not here for it. They're accusing her of just being a you know a feminist and only caring about women and not having you know that bigger picture mentality. And you know even if they're kind of okay with the equality stuff, they're like okay I get it. Uh, they definitely don't like her views on like love and sex and the traditional family like being maybe not the best option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was very different from the Bolsheviks because she put 
feminism at the core of her politics instead of just like a, a side issue, you know? Like, we'll get to it once we're done with the war and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think she got a lot of those kinds of responses of like, we can't focus on that now. And she did get a lot of that financially. Like, a lot of these programs that we're talking about, they were really cool in concept, but in execution, a lot of them, like, did not end up being up to par because their funding would get taken away very quickly. Yeah, that's what I've heard about the initial kind of radical phase, radical feminist phase of the revolution is that it was a lot on paper. It was like, damn, look, we just did this. We just, you know, we just passed this law and basically anything that was free did happen, but anything that you had to actually put money into to change, (laughs) that was just like, we, we talked about it, but we didn't really do anything. Yeah, we wrote a bunch of laws saying, like, we're totally doing this. And then, oh, shit, we don't have resources. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, she she dreamed really big. She wanted to build this, you know, palace of motherhood uh, that, that would have daycare resources and public courses on parenting and a clean place to give birth. You know, this is at a time when you don't have any of those things. Yeah. So that would be strides forward. But something that they would put down on paper but not actually do? Or did they actually pull off any of those? Uh, they pulled off a lot of these things, but it sounds like the quality and number of them was just not enough to meet demand. Mostly the quality, I think, especially of like some of the things like the children's homes and stuff like that. Just like, mm-mm, they weren't great. Yeah. Uh, they're doing what they could. But and and then as time went on and, you know, once Stalin is there, like he pretty much ends all of our programs. So mm. like it just gets cut short. Okay. So around this time, shortly after uh, the revolution, she marries Pavel Dybienko, a Ukrainian sailor and hero of the revolution. Uh, this is seen as quite scandalous because our girl right now is 45 years old and this guy is 27. That's right. She got herself a himbo. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, everyone talks shit about it. Like, Robbing can you fucking cradle. believe this? <laughs> yep. <laughs> then comes along the Brest-Litovsk Pact. Kolontai was pretty pissed about this. So if you recall, this is the one that was like, hey, we're going to like not fight with Germany anymore. We're going to give him this big old chunk of land. And she was really mad about this because her husband is Ukrainian. She's like, hey, that's like his house. Like, can you not yeah. <laughs> can you not give that away? She's so mad she resigns her position as commissar. Wow. Um, and her husband leaves for Ukraine and attempts to resist the German forces that are taking over there. Wow. Yeah. So that would put her, does that put her with, because I know there's the position of let's sign the treaty as soon as we can, just give up mm-hmm. what we got to get up and get out of the war. There was the position that Trotsky was in, which was like, let's not sign anything. Let's just try to like run around in circles and delay until the workers there give up, you know, do a revolution and then we don't <laughs> have to deal with it. Great plan. Uh, and then there was the the left sort of opposition side that was like, uh, let's do a revolutionary war. Like let's keep doing a war basically, but do it to liberate the people of Germany. Sort of. I would assume based on kind of what goes down afterwards, that she'd be more in the, the last camp there just because she often sided with the left opposition party. Mm -hmm. She becomes quite important in that area. So I would just assume that, I mean, I know she's anti-war is the only thing that, that makes me pause on that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think she is also just so personally affected by this. Like her husband ends up getting captured as a traitor and is sentenced to death Damn. Uh, by the Bolsheviks. And she has to fucking call in every single favor to like beg for his life. 
Oh, the Bolsheviks. I thought you meant like the Germans were going to. No, the Bolsheviks catch him and are like, this guy did not listen to the treaty. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess from their perspective could have drawn the ire of Germany again and put them right back under totally. the gun. Uh, that's pretty. You just could have put him on a train, man. I mean, let him hop off somewhere out in the West. So, yeah, she has to go in and be like, please, please, please don't kill this guy. And Lenin kind of uses this as, as emotional instability, which like, OK, let's capture your wife and call her a traitor and sentence her to death. Like, right. Let's see how you do. Homie. Lenin's acting like he wouldn't do the same thing. Right? Like, no, I don't even care about my wife. Uh, what, how do you, what do you think her, his wife feels about that? Like, okay. Yeah, he's <laughs> telling her that, like, at dinner. Nadia like, seriously. This lady Can came in crying like a little bitch, you know? <laughs> she was, like, begging for her husband's life. It was so lame. <laughs> oh, God. That's an awkward dinner table. <laughs> uh, she ends up succeeding in and pleading for his release and they go into a self-imposed political exile uh they're like we're just gonna lay low that was a real close one we don't want to do that again so political meaning not physical they don't actually go anywhere they don't leave they don't leave okay from what i can tell they're just shutting up for a while actually i'm, I'm not sure they just stop posting <laughs> they shut down i'm gonna be hood. taking a break from this for a while they do one of those tweets. <laughs> I need to do a mental health reset. Yeah. I need to evaluate what's positive in my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where she was physically because in my notes I have have a afterwards Lennon begs her to return, which implies that she was maybe somewhere else. Mm. I didn't write down where she went though. <laughs> maybe you just meant return to action. Yeah, or like get back out of the here. party, you know meetings yeah and all okay. the party meetings are dull now that you're gone like it's just like it sucks <laughs> we need that horny energy in here yeah <laughs> uh but yeah he basically is like dude shit is bad right now we got the white army everywhere i need you to come serve the party and travel to the front lines and talk to these fucking peasants and tell them to fight back right wow okay yeah, so he sends her out there to do this, right? And she gets there, and she's like, I don't know if this is what these peasants want to hear. They seem, like, pretty pissed. <laughs> uh, particularly, you know, she noticed that the women felt like they were not being provided for. You know, their men are being taken off to war, and they were here fucking starving. So she, like, she goes, and she talks to them, but she, I think she does more of, like, a... I think she does more of like a, a conversation instead of like a rah rah let's go nationalism kind of thing. Like a listening tour almost, sort of like. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure because I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm kind of contextualizing this based on what happens next, which is that she's, she gets the idea, of, I think, from this, to form a women's congress in in Moscow. She's like, dude, all these women are out here; they're not getting their needs met. We need to like have a a meeting on this and hash some shit out. Yeah. Okay. And the, the dudes around her are like, dude, we're in the middle of a war. Like, how are you going to transport all these ladies? Like, good fucking luck. Nobody's going to show up. And uh, <laughs> it's really bad. So, like, the anecdote is that uh, at first nobody shows up and, like, everyone's late, <laughs> which is just very, like, it sounds very like a sexist joke. Like, yeah. they all got lost. They were all adjusting <laughs> their hats or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, I mean, again, hard to travel in the middle of a war. Uh, but... 
Hundreds end up coming, way more than predicted. Many were traveling out of their hometowns for the very first time, you know, traveling very long distances to get there, you know, from across Russia. Yeah, cool. And again, Lenin comes up to Colin and he's like, great, you got all these ladies here. Will you please tell them to, like, fight against the White Army? I'm, like, really stressed about this Civil War thing. <laughs> and she's like, uh, nah, I'm good. And so instead, she just talks about emancipation and the new place for women in Soviet society. Oh, I found that quote I was talking about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> if the emancipation of women is unthinkable without socialism, then socialism is unthinkable without the full emancipation of women. Gotta have both. Gotta have it. But yeah, this Congress sounds really interesting. Like, it was such a, again, chaotic kind of thing. Like, the first night, there were so many people there, like, so much more than they thought. They had trouble feeding everybody. They're like, fuck, we gotta get, like, some tea and some bread for these, like, all these ladies here. Yeah. Just logistics. Yeah, yeah. Like, they didn't know where to put them all. But it was very successful. And, and this kind of leads to the founding of the Zenotdel, uh, the women's department, basically. And this was an organization that uh, fought to improve women's life uh, by doing literacy campaigns, founding these public daycares, laundries, cafeterias, uh, educating women on the new laws surrounding marriage and divorce uh, and work and education, just basically coming to all these women and teaching them like the new Soviet way. Delegates would be elected by local party committees to basically travel around the Soviet Union, educating people and developing their political activism. So like... Really fucking cool. That sounds... I, I, when you were talking about what the Genadel does, like, it sounds good just for society. You know, that is helping things that society at the time was saying, women, this is your thing you have to deal with. But more broad than that, it just sounds good for humans. It just sounds good in general. Like, I would like all those things, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say, small note, the Genadel had a kind of... Uh, Kind of a weird uh, campaign, too, a, a problematic one of uh, because this is later on when the Soviet Union is more expanded because the Soviet Union end up, ends up covering some of Asia and um, like Mongolia and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, they had these like devailing campaigns, which are very controversial. So like, yeah, kind of kind of a oof, maybe not kind of yeah, situation. I think that that was the from their standpoint at the time. The official standpoint was that that was a patriarchal thing that needed to be gotten rid of. I get it. I, yeah, I, I'm not well informed enough to speak on that issue at all. I just want to make that note of like, Hey, they weren't perfect, you know? Right. Cause I mean, now people have a more nuanced view of that for sure. Uh, but I think yeah. then it was just black and white. Like, Oh, look what they do. That's bad. You know? Mm -hmm. So she is taken off running with this, this women's live crap. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lennon's pissed. He's like, dude, this is not what I told you to do. <laughs> I told you to like talk about the war. You just like did your you're own thing. You're supposed to instead. be cheerleading right now. Yeah, yeah. He won. Instead, and you're doing model UN. <laughs> and he's he's freaked out by like how many women showed up and how like passionate they were. Um, it's interesting. They they write about like him walking in on on a woman like giving a speech and it's this just like rando woman from like the countryside and it's just like he realizes like oh damn there's a lot of people here who are into this and yeah. who are into her and he was also kind of confused about some of her views which we'll talk about towards the end of the show um about the nuclear family and maybe that not being needed anymore mm. he was like i don't think we need to worry about that right now like that's not central to communist theory like pff, whatever 
The documentary also, and I will say this is that guy, uh, that historian that I wasn't a fan of, he characterizes Lennon as this guy who's scheming like, oh, she's too smart or she's too powerful. I need to get rid of her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was that. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. That's the moment where I paused and went to his Wikipedia page like, did you, who, who pays for your shit? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't find out, but I was like, okay, whatever. But yeah, so this is kind of the beginning of the end for Kolontai in terms of political power. She she starts joining some opposition movements. You have the funeral of John Reed from, from the movie Reds that we watched. He ends up dying of cholera, and Kolontai makes a speech at his funeral criticizing the party, saying, like, you let this dude down. Like, he fucking came here for us, and, and he was one of us, yeah. and we didn't do enough for him. Yeah. Poor Jack Reed. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she joins the workers' opposition. Um, she's calling out the party from the left, saying, you guys are disconnected from the masses. She's trying to speak at the 19th Party Congress in 1921 to urge Lenin to return to, like, the true true spirit of the revolution. Uh, but upon reading this pamphlet, Lenin told her, quote, For this, you should not only be excluded from the, from the uh, convention, but shot as well. <laughs> oh, shit. So, like, he did not like it. He's like, this is bullshit. You should not have posted it. Delete this account. Delete your account. <laughs> Log off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that'd be a great book blurb, though. If, like, from the right person. <laughs> you should not. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Lennon is so dramatic. He's extremely dramatic. That's one thing I definitely picked up. <laughs> not only him. He's a dramatic bitch. Fish, but shot. <laughs> But she's still planning on attending this thing, right? She's like, I'm going to do it. I've got my supporters lined up. Like, I'm, I I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I'm going to do it. But then the Konstrad uprising happens, uh, and her husband has to leave to go crush this rebellion. And she ends up losing a lot of her supporters that were going to be there. Uh, just her crowd of folks had to go deal with that. Ah, uh, yeah. Kronstadt, that was a, that was a big one. Uh, brutal. Uh Maybe, you know, I guess it's best defense of of what happened there is maybe it was necessary, but it still sucks. Which one is this again? What area is this in? Oh, it's in Kronstadt. Um, but. <laughs> oh, is it that little island? Yeah, it's the little. Yeah. Okay. I remember now. And they're like, give us better conditions. And mm-hmm. and they're like, well, blah, blam, blam. <laughs> yeah. Not a great look. No, pretty bad. Uh, pretty bad. Generally. I'm of a school that it probably could have been handled better. Probably. Yeah, you know, put me in charge and then maybe the whole thing falls apart because, you know, we let those guys get out of control. I don't know. Yeah. So she ends up talking at this thing, but she doesn't have like all of her folks there. You know, there's there's a lot fewer people supporting her than she thought there would be. And then Lennon gets up there, talks shit about the workers opposition for like 45 minutes straight, <laughs> including... Some snide remarks about how she used to fuck the leader of the opposition, uh, Slyapnikov. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, again, dramatic petty bitch. He's just like, whatever, you just used to fuck this guy. Like, just yeah. being a total asshole, airing out the dirty laundry. He is pissed. <laughs> that does sound like Lennon. Uh, <laughs> total, like, using whatever he has against right. you like that. Ruthless. Ugh. So that's the aspect, I guess, that service and people like him are correct about it. He was ruthless, but I don't think he was like scheming in the sense of like 
power. Like I need to have the mm-hmm. power against other people who believe like me. It was more like people who believe like me need to have the power. Yeah. Yeah. Like he truly thought like this is what's best for the party. Yeah. Robert Service, by the way, mm. is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Okay. Uh, and they are is a, a... Is that a baddie? Yeah. They're a kind of right-wing think tank. There we go. Promotes personal and economic liberty, free enterprise, and limited government. <laughs> we found it. We found the money. We followed it. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. <laughs> Always do that, kids. <laughs> when yeah. you hear someone talking about how evil and power-hungry a Soviet was, do a, do a quick search. Yeah. It's usually a reason why. Colin Ty is crushed man she is defeated the party votes to condemn the workers opposition movement for being a quote anarcho-syndicalist deviation end quote and bans all factions no more factions y'all too many factions <laughs> they meant it like they meant to say fractions like fractions were getting complicated I'm just, just use decimals tired of fractions <laughs> stupid <laughs> Her husband, he, he got some points for crushing this rebellion in Kronstadt. And he kind of like looked at his wife and he's like, you're kind of on the outs of the party. And I'm kind of like in with them now. Ooh. So like maybe, maybe we don't. And she ends up finding that he's been living with the younger woman in Odessa. Ah, okay. Also, maybe we don't because of that reason. <laughs> also, I found someone who's closer to my age, and yeah, sorry. Damn. Kolontai doesn't quite give up. She still gives a speech at the Third Congress of the Comintern, denouncing the new economic policy for its betrayal of the workers and the potential to bring back capitalism. She also co-signs the famous Letter of the 22, uh, where several members of the workers' opposition calls for the international to take action against undemocratic practices in Russia. Okay, so she seems she seems kind of steadfastly on the left side of the party factions or, you know, mm, tendencies once we ban factions, you know, kind of on that group of saying, hey, we need to do more socialism, more communism now, rather than kind of muck about in temporary measures. Yeah, yeah, she is all in for it, and and she's getting some heat for it. Trotsky and Zinoviev remove her name from the list of speakers at uh, the International. Canceled. Yeah, they're just like, you're not going up there. And when she was like, fuck you, I'm going up there anyway, they ordered that all members of the Russian delegation should obey the directives of the party. So, like, they're like, no, no factionalism, guys, remember? Like, don't fucking talk shit in front of us. Discipline. Yeah. She was put on trial for factionalism. Oh. Along w- with her buddies, Mendevev and Shalapnikov. That name's always going to get me. Was the trial, like, the government? Or was it, like, within just the party? Or I believe it was within the party. Okay. I was wondering if they, like, seriously okay. arrested her and was like, you're charged with. Sorry, I'm also trying to find that guy's name. Mendvev. Men- Med- Medvedev? Medvedev. Yeah, that was really hard for me to say. <laughs> I thought I made a typo. <laughs> but no, that's his name. There's just a lot of V's and D's in there. Okay. Sorry, listeners. Stalin wants her purged. He's like, get this bitch out of here. What year is this? 1922. Okay. This is, yeah, this is within the party. It's at the 11th Party Congress. 
Stalin's part of the commission investigating her, and he's like, get her out of here. I hate it. Purge her. <laughs> she defends herself, saying, you know, just kick me out, guys. It's fine. <laughs> but if you do that, I'm still going to fight for the Communist Party. Like, just just don't invite me to your shit anymore, basically. Yeah. And basically, her, her former good standing kind of wins out. And she's not kicked out of the party, but she's definitely on watch. They say, like, we're warning you or... Yeah, just like, hey, cut this shit out. And she mostly does because Stalin takes power and she is like pretty freaked out. She's like, this guy wanted to like have me gone from the party. It says purge. So like, I mean, it could just be kicked out of the party. But still, she's like, I don't feel great about this. Can you send me abroad? She's kind of assuming this is going to be a temporary thing. Like, all right, I'm on the outs right now. I'll get my way back in. It's cool. I'm just going to lay low. Mm hmm. And, and so she starts her ambassadorial work. But, I mean, shit is not going well. The Jeanette Dell gets shut down in 1930. Stalin's like, we did it. Women are great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of its social programs go away. Uh, you have a lot of orphans just kind of swarming the streets after World War II, often committing petty theft. Uh, this is what happens when you don't have social services. Yeah. And you have so much of your manpower killed. Yeah, you've got tons of orphans because all the parents died in a war. Yeah. So she goes abroad. She serves in Norway, Mexico, and Sweden uh, before becoming ambassador to Norway in 1943. The third woman in the world to hold an ambassadorial position. Mm, okay. Uh, but she was kind of, again, laying really low because she is repeatedly investigated in the purges. But even as she was like kind of under scrutiny, she would still write to Stalin urging him to spare people uh, from from the purges too. Like she was still sticking her neck out there for people. Like she knew what was going on and was trying to persuade him on certain certain people, like people she knew or just like... I'm not, I'm not sure. So this quote kind of came from, or this, this story came from her grandson. And there was some speculation that maybe her nephew, who, who was a composer, uh, maybe him and, and her son like maybe they kind of got away with some stuff because she was like hey like can we not please don't kill them <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i don't know how much of it was like personal stuff uh or how much of it was just like can you please just be less of a dick mm -hmm. so not sure <laughs> but it is implied that she did use that for for some friends that's interesting that she could be that she could speak out in that i guess it's hard to recall an ambassador to purge them they're just not going to go back, you know? Yeah. And, and even so, like, she still is, like, quite paranoid and for good reason. Because, I mean, in, in 1936, her, her embassy, the embassy in Stockholm gets infiltrated by the KGB and all of her staff gets replaced, like, overnight. And she's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so she is, you know, on watch. She she sends her letters and all of her writing to a friend and is like, dude, keep this until I'm dead, like 10 years after I'm dead. Uh, and then send it to the, the Marx Engels Institute in Moscow. You know, they can publish it whenever they feel like it's the right time. She edits her own autobiography. Uh, if you want to see the extent of, of the edits, they, they have it on the Marxist archive. Um, she basically goes through and just cleans it up. She, she takes out anything that could be viewed as dangerous or critical of the party. She's just like, no, I'm, I'm laying low. Damn. All right. So quick rewrite there. Revision. 
this is what I was talking about. And I was like, she knows how to change her mind. And this is one of the instances where I'm like, Ugh, that sucks that you had to do that. Yeah. Like, I think this was much more changing her mind under duress. Yeah. I wouldn't say that she's literally saying. You're uh, right. <laughs> yeah. I messed up all those years ago. It's just she can't do anything with it anymore. A kind of a surrender. I think yes. And and she's criticized for this for sure. Like his, by historians. They're like, why didn't she? Do more, you know. Do more what? Diplomacy with other countries? Like, she doesn't have any Yeah, like, to... well, you're an ambassador. What the fuck are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> but she was in this unique position because, uh, you know, even as she was seen as, you know, this woman is definitely in the doghouse in a lot of ways, because she was quite famous as being, like, one of the few female ambassadors in the world, she you, they kind of couldn't get rid of her without looking really bad. Yeah, that's the thing. So she was kind of in like a weird safe zone of like, okay, I can be alive and keep my people alive. And, you know, I can, I can kind of have a chill life right now. Well, but, you know. Yeah. I think the other thing you have to look at is what would she want to do that? So she, while opposing some of the things that the Soviet Union was doing as a government under Stalin, she wasn't opposed to the Soviet Union. No, not at all. And so she had to be like, how much of what I say to criticize mm. aspects of what my gov like, you know, particular policies of my government will be deliberately twisted by the bourgeois press of the world to be like Soviet diplomat trashes her own country, you know? That's very true. That's a great point. Because, like, throughout her writings, like, even during this time period, like, she is still writing about things that she cares about. She, she writes about, you know, the life of the Soviet woman in 1946. In this writing, she does kind of reverse position a little bit. Like, it's more focused on, like, wow, she, like, gets to fulfill her natural obligation of being being a mother and whatever. Mm. Which, like, she kind of talks about in her earlier writings, too, but, like, a little differently. Like, it's just, it's not, like, a total reversal. It's just a different characterization, different, different color. Okay. But, yeah, I, I, I totally see that of, like... Yeah, it's not like she was like, man, I wish I were American or something, <laughs> you know, like she's still on the on board, but she understands that like right now it is not worth it for me to be pushing from the left. Like I tried that and it didn't fucking work. Yeah. In 1944, her ex-husband, uh, Pavel, the Ukrainian guy, and her, her ex-lover that Lenin called her out on, they were killed by Stalin's purges. Kolontai retires in 1945. She is recalled to Moscow and her diaries and letters are taken by the KGB, but she still, she still writes. She's just like, Hey, like I'm, I'm just trying to leave a record here. Yeah. <laughs> Give Dave and Dan something to read. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she dies on March 9th, 1952 in Moscow from natural causes. One kind of interesting fact, uh, there was a, uh, an uprising situation in 1991 in Moscow, and mobs destroyed lots of statues of old Bolshevik leaders. Hers was untouched. Nice. Yeah, so she was popular even then. Yeah. Get that guy. No, 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 don't get her. She's good. <laughs> she was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get into the, the readings. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Okay, I've got some quotes pulled. Starting back, going back in time here, 1909. The social basis of the woman question. Ooh, the woman. Women. Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> What's even going on there? 
What's up with women? What's the deal with women? (laughs) (laughs) That's my Seinfeld. It's really bad. Basic stuff here. This is early on, 1909. Uh, But already she has a lot of her theory figured out. She's saying, hey, women are being fucked by capitalism. They're being uh, hurt by, quote, that insatiable monster with its gilded maw, which concerned only to drain all the sap from its victims and to grow at the expense of millions of human lives. That is capitalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically That's cancerous. It. It's bad. We should get rid of it. Fueled by human blood. Early on in her writing, she she talks a lot about uh, bourgeois feminists. Uh, she will use the word feminists in a derogatory way. Mm. Uh, but what she means by this is is basically suffragists. Uh, suffragettes, I guess. I don't know. That sounds weird. Yeah, either way. She's talking about people who are who are only interested in in the right to vote. Uh, these are mostly middle class and upper middle class women. Mm-hmm. Kind of the classic story of feminism we receive of, oh, then women realize we should vote. And that's how feminism happened. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, hey, that's kind of bullshit. They, they are all about this. But once they get that power, they're going to turn around and use it against their, their so-called sisters who are in the working class. Oh, yeah, that's totally true. Because what it's it's a bourgeois right, you know it's a right within capitalism to have the right to vote. Uh, with basically the understanding that that bourgeois right is not going to extend as in, from a political one to an economic one. It's not going to give you economic democracy or anything of that sort. It's just just only solely in the sphere of politics, which we are saying is separate. You know, basically calling that out of like this is not the solution we need right now. A quote here, once the barrier is down and the bourgeois women have received all access to political activity, the recent defenders of the, quote, rights of all women become enthusiastic defenders of the privileges of their class, content to leave the younger sisters with no rights at all. So, like, yeah, she's just like, that's that's some bullshit. (laughs) Don't try to distract us with that. Like, it's cool. Like, Yeah, I would also like to vote. But, like, that's not what we're here for. So it's like a dividing thing, too. Of like, that will be good enough for some people, and so that'll peel them off your movement? I think so, yeah. Uh, She talks a lot about different women leaders who are talking about that cause and kind of how they're not focused on the right things and that it's, it's not... It's it's not an actually useful cause. That's that's kind of what she considers. Well, sure, and you gotta consider she, you know, her views match up with Lenin's in terms of the uselessness of parliamentary procedure and rights and stuff within a capitalist society you know yeah yeah and and she's like dude what would that do for the working class women that would just make them uh there's a great quote of of an equal share in inequality that's what it would get them (laughs) yeah they're like oh gee thanks i'm equal to men we're all miserable thank you right (laughs) (laughs) another quote from this this reading um she's often again portrayed as this advocate for free love but I would say she couches it in the need to restructure productive forces. She talks about this as upper class women or bourgeois women. A lot has been written lately about how they're practicing this, this free love or they're, they're marrying only for love, things like that. And like lots of novels have been written about that. It's this very glamorous thing, right? Mm-hmm. But 
it's not new. She's like, like working class women do that all the time. It's not a big deal. And she also talks about how, like, if you were to truly have like a non-possessive version of, of free love, like trying to introduce that into capitalist society would be really fucking bad. She says, uh, introduced consistently into contemporary class society, instead of freeing women from the hardships of family life, would surely shoulder her with a new burden, the task of caring alone and unaided for her children. Um, she's like, we can't just throw that in here. Like, it, it's interesting because, you know, we, we talk about how she wrote a lot of divorce and marriage laws. And I'm kind of wishing I had done more research into what specifically those were, because there was a problem, like when a lot of those laws got changed of men being like, all right, I'm going to peace out. I just got this girl pregnant. That's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like being quite pragmatic about it of like, that sounds rad. We can't do that yet. <laughs> we have to like take care of people first. Yeah. Cause of the material conditions. She's basically saying those aren't right. And if you, if you try to do it in the, with social relations and everything being what they are in terms of, uh, property relations and things like that, then yeah, I mean, it's messy. Sexism is like part of capitalism. So if capitalism is still there, the sexism is still going to happen. Even if you write it down on paper and say, here's our new law that no more sexism mm -hmm. and women are equal in material Good ways, luck. it's going to turn out that actually not because you know, materially they are not. Yes. Yes. She also, you know, calls out that double standard of, you know, when bourgeois people talk about free love, it's this, you know, enlightened, exciting thing that you can write novels about. Uh, but when they talk about it in terms of the working class, it's like depravity and like, look how immoral they are, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that because you were saying she's like, yeah, the working class has been marrying for love for a long time. Uh, it's because they don't have any property at stake. The whole thing of the aristocrats doing it their way is they have to arrange to best steward their you know rich inheritances and all that yes all right moving on to communism and the family 1920 jumping forward a bit here i like both of these communism and the family so i'm for for it <laughs> <laughs> she writes a lot about the effects of capitalism on the family she's just like dude how even do you which like great fucking question i still have this question <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, quote, what kind of family life can there be if the wife and mother is out at work for at least eight hours and counting the traveling is away from home 10 hours a day? Her home is neglected. The children grow up without any maternal care, spending most of the time out on the streets, exposed to all the dangers of this environment. The woman who is wife, mother and worker has to expend every ounce of energy to fulfill these roles. She has to work the same hours as her husband in some factory, printing house, or commercial establishment. And then on top of that, she has to find time to attend to her household and look after her children. Capitalism has placed a crushing burden on women's shoulders, has made her a wage worker without having reduced her cares as housekeeper or mother. What was it called? The second shift or something? Second shift, man. She's writing about this in 1920. Yeah. I mean, true... And good thing we got that fixed. I mean, you know, I'm really glad. <laughs> I'm not worried about having children at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad we made sure that that wouldn't have to be the case anymore. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good call out. What um, was her kind of approach to solving that in socialism? If, if you just kind of read the, the highlights or, or a, summer, a summary of her views, you might see something along the lines of, oh, Kolontai 
doesn't see domestic work as productive labor. Like she can be kind of, uh, you know, a productivist in that way. Like you should be in a factory, you should be doing something versus rearing children. Okay. And I think like, yeah, there's some sentences in her writing that allude to that of like, she's produced nothing. She just wasted her fucking time. Cause guess what? It's going to be dusty tomorrow again, which I'm like, yeah, but like that's still works. Yeah. It's a nice quality of living increase. (laughs) I would like to not live in a nasty house. But I, I would say it, what would be more accurate instead of saying that like, oh, she you know, looks down on like, quote unquote, women's work or something like that. What she does is she recognizes that like, hey, capitalism isn't paying you for this either. And what we're going to do under socialism is reduce that work for you to a negligible amount so you can do other kinds of labor. Like, yeah, I would way rather have you working in a productive force, but we are also going to take care of that for you. So instead of the working woman cleaning her flat, the communist society can arrange for men and women whose job it is to go around in the morning cleaning rooms. Instead of the working woman having to struggle with the cooking and spend her last free hours in the kitchen preparing dinner and supper, communist society will organize public restaurants and communal kitchens. So she's like, we'll just do it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people who like to do that can just do that for the whole community, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, if that's if that's your shit... Go for it. Saying kind of you'd be free to do that, you know, if you do enjoy it. But for so many people who for whom it's a drudgery, they would be freed from having to do that. They could just have someone who actually likes to do it. So that's a great point Um, that kind of folds into the next point about like the family. Like a lot of people got freaked out. Like I mentioned, Lennon was like, I don't know what you're talking about here with the whole dissolving the family thing. That sounds kind of scary, right? Yeah, He's like, I thought my brother was cool. Like, why why are we doing this? (laughs) We were kind of (laughs) buds. But she talks about it more of like, you can still like take care of your baby if you like taking care of your baby. Like, that's cool. Like, Mm -hmm. please do that. But we are going to help you way more than you're currently being helped. And also, if you're maybe not as good at it or like you don't, because like, I I think lots of parents would agree, like, there is a spectrum, like some people are so fucking naturally good and find so much joy in different phases of a child's life. Mm -hmm. Like, because I I like to ask parents, like, what's your favorite? Like, is baby the best? Is toddler the best? Like, what's your favorite? And people have different answers. And that's totally normal. Yeah. So like, it's okay if like, you know, you're really into the baby phase, but you're like, fuck, toddlers are annoying. Like, guess what? You can drop them off. <laughs> yeah. That would be cool. Just boarding school, but like for a chapter of life. <laughs> I mean, kind of like the the way she talks about this, she envisions a, a, quote, great proletarian family. Basically, the worker state will come to replace the family and society is going to take on all those tasks that fell to individual parents before. Um, she's talking about playgrounds, gardens, homes for children uh, that they can spend most of the day at under like qualified educators and also interacting with more adults so that the kids can like have kind of a conscious communist upbringing and be like, oh, cool. Like I'm learning about how to be a good comrade and mutual aid and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's kind of good in terms of Well, definitely in terms of like the schools and daycares and stuff like that, you know, the professional part of it, but also in terms of being able to interact with people like a wider community, I think that would be, like you said, kind of build solidarity and build trust in other people, I think is something that would be important for a socialistic communist project is we got to, we can't, you know, 
give in to you can't be islands anymore. Yeah, give into that atomization that we're so used to. We have to, you know, build up those those bridges to other people. I think. Yeah, and I would say too, like as someone who hangs out with a kid a good amount, like kids get so tired of their fucking parents. Like you can be the best parent in the world, and they'll they'll still be like, "I'm so sick of seeing this fucker." Like, give me any other adult, and they'll be so excited to hang out with you just because you're not mom, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's really good for kids to like get more knowledge of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I like this this quote. Um, you know, she's she's saying, you know, don't worry, we're not gonna take your baby from you. Uh, but what we're saying is everyone has the right to happiness. Therefore, live your life. Do not flee happiness. That's a good quote by itself. Do not fear marriage, even though under capitalism, marriage was truly a chain of sorrow. Do not be afraid of having children. Society needs more workers and rejoices at the birth of every child. Do not have to worry about the future of your child. Your child will know neither hunger nor cold. That's pretty sick. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she says, you know, if... Those parents who desire to participate in the education of their children will by no means be prevented from doing so. Communist society will take upon itself all the duties involved in the education of the child, but the joys of parenthood will not be taken away from those who are capable of appreciating them. So, like, you can do as much of it as you want, kind of. Yeah, yeah. But I think her idea is, like, let's spread that work around more, not Mm -hmm. only from a, you know, a physical labor perspective, but also, like, that's a good thing for the child, too. She talks about this this idea of not differentiating between your kids and someone else's kids, like just a general sense of like looking out for each other, which I think is really nice. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, let's see. She writes about marriage as well, saying, hey, this is no longer going to be this cruel calculation of either inheritance or just survival or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. She says marriage will be a union of two persons who love and trust each other. Such a union promises to the working men and women who understand themselves and the world around them the most complete happiness and the maximum satisfaction. Instead of the conjugal slavery of the past, communist society offers women and men a free union which is strong and the comradeship which inspired it. Cute. Yeah. Again, (laughs) productive forces. Pretty important if you're going to change marriage and family. You have to be freed from stuff for that to work. Yes. If property's still there, then it's not going to, you know. All right. The Labor of Women and the Evolution of Economy, written in 1921. She writes about a lot of the same stuff, like, hey, we're going to take care of your kids. It'll be cool. (laughs) Uh, But here she says just straight up, uh, abortion should be a practical right. She's like, hey, it exists. No laws are good at getting rid of it. A way, you know, someone always finds a way to do that. And the secret help often hurts women Mm -hmm. let's see abortion when carried out under proper medical conditions is less harmful and dangerous and the woman can get back to work quicker always about the work (laughs) with this woman (laughs) yeah uh soviet power has therefore allowed abortion to be performed openly and in clinical conditions so she's like hey we should do that that was cool yeah (laughs) and it works for a while yeah yeah until you know (laughs) Stalin. yeah oops she did not always have good takes, though. Ooh, give us a bad one. Yeah. Uh, the title kind of says it all in this. Prostitution and Ways of Fighting It, written in 1921. Okay. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> From my understanding, communists and socialists and stuff are... I mean, don't they have divided opinions on 
sex work. They do. I am personally pro-sex work because I'm like, well, that's work. You should be protected. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I also am like against work in general. <laughs> work sucks and we all hate it. So <laughs> right. uh, you should have to do less of it. I feel like if we did socialism or communism, you'd probably end up with far fewer sex workers because far fewer people actually want to do that versus have to. I think that's a probably accurate guess. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think that's what she's getting at here. Like, I th- if we think about the time she's writing in 1921, she is like, not great. You just have the big old Civil War. Yeah. Times are pretty tight. She's seeing a lot of women be put into these really inescapable situations. Mm-hmm. And so she writes about prostitution and, and really compares it with traditional marriage. Uh, she's like, dude. That's basically the same thing. I've seen so many women married off to rich dudes that they don't like because they're trying to survive. Yeah. And and she calls that out of like, why is that okay? Why is it cool to like marry for money if you're a bourgeoisie kind of kind of type? But it's not cool to, you know, be a prostitute. That's fucked up. She's doing a call out post to the gold diggers. She is. <laughs> <laughs> to the quote lawful wife. Man, I think, though, she probably had more sympathy to them, though, than maybe that reads, given that, you know, was it her sister, her sister did do that. who <laughs> she probably could talk to her and be like, you don't really want to do this, right? You're just, you know, and she's like, yeah, this sucks, you know, <laughs> it does suck. So basically what she writes about, it's very similar to her views of marriage of like, hey, this is a fucked up thing. We're going to change the game, you know, we're going to change the system so that you don't have to get into this bad marriage that you don't want to be in. Mm-hmm. And she kind of talks very similarly in similar terms about prostitution, saying we're working on on improving our conditions. We're working on improving gender equality. But since we are in a transitional state, we are not there yet. She she blames this on, on the set of circumstances. She's like, that's why we have so many prostitutes right now. Like we are just women are still struggling. Um, so she views this as like a problem to be solved, you know, Mm -hmm. but she does not view them as productive workers. Again, she loves, she loves productive shit. Um, she calls them labor deserters. (laughs) Oh, people who could otherwise be working at something good, but are doing this instead. Yeah. And she even goes so far as to call like kind of a housewife a labor deserter too. She's like, same fucking thing. And I'm like, that's okay. Depending on what kind of wife you like, if you're like, you marry the, the, you know, the industrial guy and <laughs> you know, you're rich or whatever, I guess. Yeah. You are a labor deserter. But like, if you're just a regular ass wife, <laughs> you know, you're still working. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Cause we were just talking about how you would have the army of cleaners and housekeepers. That's labor. <laughs> right. So that's labor. But then if someone wants to do that to their own house, then it's not. I, I feel like she's so close to making the point. She's like, yeah, we'll take care of this this need for you by cleaning your house. Why can't you then make the leap of, and that's labor? Right. Those people. <laughs> like, that's work. That's work you're hiring someone to do. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you were a housewife and also had the cleaning crew come in, then this may, you <laughs> yeah, may be a labor suck. deserter. Oh, yeah. It's you like might a, be a labor deserter. It's the Jeff Foxworthy <laughs> labor deserter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the red collar tour yeah so then where does you know sex work fall along that she considers them deserters and she compares them to like merchants who before you know you used to be able to you know sell shit and they're considered legitimate workers 
But now, like, hey, we don't have stores anymore. So, like, go do productive labor. But I'm like, you still need someone to, like, see it in the store and help people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I don't know. It's just not a great... In my opinion, this is, you know, one of the weaker pieces. But we also have a lot of different views on this now, I think. So, I get it. Um, she's also against it on the basis of health. She writes a lot about the venereal diseases that are popping off right now. She's like, it's pretty bad out there. And, and she talks a little bit about, like, the different solutions people have suggested. You know, there's people who want to criminalize them. There's people. And she's like, no, that's not a great idea. Because then we should would have to go arrest all the housewives who don't do work. Which I'm like, what the fuck? Again, funny. what the hell? That's so good. Uh, she just basically like, look, they're a labor deserter. Just treat them that way. Just put them to work. And, and well, what's weird is she also shoots down people who are like, well, let's go after, you know, the customers. But she's like, well, then we also have to go after, like, the husbands. <laughs> I like her devotion so, to that analogy. She's so devoted. She's like, fuck traditional marriage. Like, it's prostitution. Like, she's just straight up. Mm-hmm. Is, that's what she thinks. <laughs> okay. So she does end up saying, basically, that criminalizing it won't work. Yes, basically. But it's because it's to serve her analogy, her weird-ass analogy. Right. I, I thought she could just make a simpler cut by saying it won't work because it didn't work to outlaw abortion. So uh, Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, man. She's, she's missing some dot connecting here, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do get the arguments for, like, freeing people from the necessity. It's kind of like the argument with motherhood or, or parenting and all mm-hmm. that is like if you you'll be free to do it if you want to do it yes but, and, you know i mean oslo and that side is not even gonna mean any money so you're just like agreeing to hook up with people <laughs> when they want to i don't know it's, it's which a, i think she was very for yeah but th- th- then there's not even really a exchange happening so you're not really even no. in that sex work you're not in that position. field anymore you're just like fucking have fun yeah, which is not really so. okay. Well, let's let's extrapolate that because I think she's talking about. Oh, I, I haven't read it, so correct me, I guess. But is she talking about like their society as it currently is? Yes, sex workers should be treated as labor deserters. That is what she's talking about. She's not in in utopia yet. Okay, because then in utopia, or not even all the way to replicate a utopia, but if you still have any sort of exchange happening. You know, your time tokens or labor vouchers or whatever, then I guess you are kind of mooching them. Yeah, I guess that's what she she thinks. She thinks it's not she thinks it's not work because it's not productive. She's very reductive in that sense. Reductive about productive. If you just had the state run them, then it would be the state would basically be recovering some of its labor vouchers and thereby making people you know, incentivizing them to work more because they don't have as many labor vouchers anymore. Work more so you can fuck. Yeah. I don't know, but that gets strange, too. It's weird. It's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could do a whole episode on, on the theory around sex work and its potential place in the revolution. Yeah. But what I was mainly trying to say earlier was that it seems kind of like in line with what she was saying is you would be free to do that if you want, but you're also freed from having to do it out of necessity. I think that's her larger point. It's very much how she writes about marriage. Again, she loves that comparison. 
is definitely fucked up the way it's happening now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't you rather not be put in that position if that's the case, you know? Like, she recognizes that a large majority, like, she points out, like, hey, why is it that every time there's an economic crisis, we have more prostitutes? Right. Uh, I can figure that one out pretty easily. Yeah. (laughs) So, for the, you know, we spend a ton of energy talking about people who, you know, say, well, but this is, you know, my job, I like this you know, line of work or whatever. And that maybe that slice is smaller than the discussion warrants. Yeah. I think, I think especially in her time. Yeah. Yeah, I guess true. People are more like sex positive and stuff now. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to sexual relations and the class struggle written in 1921. Uh, I included this nice quote about atomization and it's kind of effect on relationships Man experiences this loneliness even in towns full of shouting, noise, and people, even in a crowd of close friends and workmates. Because of their loneliness, men are apt to cling in a predatory and unhealthy way to illusions about finding a soulmate Mm. from among the members of the opposite sex. They see sly eros as the only means of charming away, if only for a time, the gloom of inescapable loneliness. I think this is really good, really true. Yeah, that one kind of blew my mind. I've heard this somewhere before, this idea that people just put too much on the notion of getting everything from their spouse in terms of relational needs. That was like the biggest game changer in my relationship of like, oh, it's like very healthy to have your own friends and shit. Yeah. (laughs) You should probably do that. (laughs) Yeah, because otherwise you're putting so much on one person and like a human can't can't be everything to you like they can be you know romantically everything to you but like they can't literally fulfill all of the social roles in your life yeah i mean viewing it much more like kind of how i view my friends of like oh you know this friend is really good if i need like advice this friend's really good if i just want to forget about shit and just chill with them like understanding like your partner has those strengths and weaknesses too is huge but i i do think this is really interesting though i'm really curious because like people write about love and sex all the time, obviously, like that's kind of a a human condition to be in. But I'm super curious about like the rise of the novel going kind of hand in hand with industrialization. Mm, And novels often focused on things like like romanticism and stuff like that. Like, I wonder if that's kind of related to this atomization of, you know, even the fucking word like romanticism like that movement was like, oh, everything's so big and existential. Like, (laughs) Like, what are the odds that, like, those are connected of, like, I'm very lonely. I'm because of atomization. I got to find someone that's going to be my soulmate. Sort of an escape to a better situation where you can be complete. Yes. And we're searching for it in the wrong places, maybe. Yeah, because, I mean, it should be, yes, you're going to have romantic connection with people, but you're also, you should have a wider network of people that you trust and belong with than we do. I mean we evolved to be that way. Like just, yeah. We're (laughs) tribal people. Yeah. In this, she also writes about seeing the main problems of kind of romantic love as it stands of, you know, there's this idea of possessing the married partner. She blames this on kind of the attitude of ownership intrinsic in like a capitalist society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also sexism. She's like, Hey, if if you have sexism in your society, which like we do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, then you are going to inherently devalue your partner. She she does this in a very funny way. 
she kind of gives an example of like, why is it okay if a guy takes on like kind of a stupid wife? Uh, <laughs> like that's not a big deal. But if a woman like marries a himbo, it's like very scandalous. Is that, that I think that may be a 1920s thing. Is that still around? I think that's a 19. I don't think so. I think we love himbos now. Himbos are having a moment. Yeah. I'm like, that's fine. I, you know. I'm like, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, people should get, you know, get with people who are intelligent or not intelligent as they want. Like, do you? Yeah, thing. like whatever. Sometimes <laughs> it's whatever works for you. Yeah. But what? She, yeah, she's like, it's totally normal to have like a trophy wife, but a trophy husband is very strange. You know. Yeah. I yeah. I don't know that. I mean, it is rare. Uh, that but doesn't hold up. I don't think people are as judgy about that anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <sighs> but I do think the the property relation thing was interesting. I I, I don't think it's. I don't know. I don't see it as really, I guess, patriarchal or like only men are the jealous ones or whatever. But I do think that that devaluing of people to be in some way possessed in a relationship is, you know, like, I guess, jealousy is this like kind of cruel side effect of capitalism of you, you know, it has to be your thing. Like someone could take this from you instead of like, this is a human making decisions. I think, yeah, I, I think we're, you know, we talked about last week, we are consumers first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that in the dating world of it, it is such a shopping experience now in, you know, and in dating itself. Yeah, there is a lot of feeling and entitled to another person's time and, and attention and uh, going back to that atomization element too of like, no, you have, you have to be here. Right. And <laughs> you they are have my soulmate. To make you feel perfect and mm -hmm. like that's that's just that's a burden they have to carry because i mean they're supposed to be you know fulfill it all and you're yeah. not supposed to you know ever feel bad with them or we are also <laughs> you know kind of luckily ignorant of the what the what the newer dating stuff world looks like it oh probably looks God. even more hellish you know it yeah. looks terrifying from what i've heard god i i got out right in time <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a nightmare yeah. I wanted to end us with my favorite reading of hers. It's called Soon, and then in parentheses, In 48 Years' Time. That's not that soon, but okay. It's actually far away, like past. <laughs> oh, so when did she write it? She wrote it in 1922. So, so she thinks this is what's going to happen in 1970. Okay, 1970. Let's see what it's like. I highly recommend everyone go read this because I love it so much. Like, I want to write a fucking song about this. It's <laughs> lovely. Maybe I'll do a comic. Ooh, okay. She is a dreamer. She writes beautifully about this Christmas uh, someday in Commune 10, uh, where these kids are, are asking to hear stories from their, quote, red grandmother, which like, wow, great. <laughs> <laughs> And so they get really excited, like, oh, let's have like an old school Christmas. And so they, they produce actual candles. And, and they, they write a lot about that of like, you know, we haven't used candles in so long, we had to look up how to do it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they got a real fir tree, you know, and she writes a lot about how healthy and happy the young people are. Remember, again, this is 1922. She's just like, wow, look how like strong they are, you know? Yeah, I mean, coming off of a civil war, not not a lot of people are going around looking, you know, completely healthy. Looking hot. Yeah. <laughs> it's not perfect. Uh, there's a quote here. 
The struggle of men and women to control their environment was still in progress. The more victories they won, the more mysteries there were to be solved. But the young people were not afraid of the battle. What would life be like without the struggle, with the need to stretch the mind and strive forward towards the unknown and the unattainable? Life on the commune would be dull without it. Lovely. Just so lovely. <laughs> yeah, that's, that reminds me of um, Picard talking to the capitalist. He's totally. like, we just do things to better ourselves and to achieve. Like, what do you do? You're weird. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. She writes about uh, the kids asking their grandparents, like, we saw money one time in a museum. Like, did you have money, Grandpa? Like, did you carry it in a bag? That's so <laughs> Saying, weird. Pay me, pay me. Pay me. And they're like, well, I've heard about this thing called thieves. What the fuck is that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, this totally foreign concept. And, and they ask to hear stories about the wars and stories about Lenin. They're like, did you really meet him, Grandma? Like, you know. Nice. Uh, it's really cute. And she writes about, like, kind of the, the world they have built. Um, everyone works at their own vocation for two hours a day. She got down to a two-hour day. That's rad. That's awesome. <laughs> Although that means you have to be, like, basically productive your whole work day to get your stuff done. Yeah, you, no goofing <laughs> off. <laughs> Contributing in this way to the running of the commune, the rest of the time, the individual is free to devote his or her energies to the type of work he or she enjoys to science, technology, art, agriculture, teaching. So, like, kind of no difference between work and fun. Um, who wrote about that? Was that, that was Marx, Marx as well? Yeah, Marx and Engels talked yeah. about basically the abolition of work or in the sense of tearing down the division of work and play. Yeah, like, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a shitty tech startup way. No, but, like, almost in a return to our hunter-gatherer roots of kids learning just by doing by learning to do what they're going to do and people like play basically just being like low stakes version of what you already do of hunting and stuff and gathering and stuff like that it's it's just your existence you're you're closer to that sort of animal state of you don't see animals oh they're getting to work okay now they're playing like i mean they play somewhat but it's Let's the same as hunting, hunting rats. yeah <laughs> yeah no like look at a cat that's yeah. all they do so, I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's more of a, uh, what we should be doing, I guess, or how we would be happier. Yes. Yes. A, a more natural upbringing in that sense. Yeah. And not in the sense of like hunting literally, but. No, no. But whatever it is, like there's more opportunities to dabble. I love yeah. a dabbler. Yeah. <laughs> All that dabbling. Young men and women work together at the same professions. Uh, life is organized. This is interesting. People do not live in families, but in groups, according to their ages. Uh, children have their, quote, palaces, uh, which sounds rad. I, I want to be a kid. Uh, <laughs> the young people, their smaller homes. Adults live together communally in the various ways that suit them and the old people together in their houses. Which, that's very interesting to me, to live with people your age. Like, I mean, I don't really like having roommates, so. It's like always a dorm. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'd still want, like, some privacy there. So, kind of an interesting take, though. Well, if you could convince people that there's enough people like you who want their privacy, you could probably get them to, you know, build it. Like, yeah, I think a courtyard situation would be great, or just a big yard situation of, like, if I want people, they're there. But yeah. I don't have to. <laughs> what if you did, like, a reverse <laughs> suburbia thing? So, mm. the roundabout would be, like, a grass yard or something. And all the houses mm -hmm. would, like, face the grass yard, the you yard. know? You yeah, because no one needs their own yard. It's such a bitch to take care of. Yeah. 
That's another <laughs> Make thing. Make it a garden. To hit kind of the men's rights angle of this, um, just to, for, for abs- <laughs> you know, since absolutely nobody asked, uh, we should have teams of, we want to free people. If if you want to mow your yard, you can. But There's some guys who love that we're shit. We're going to have a team of men and women who go, just people who go and mow the yards <laughs> of the commune. We're also going to get rid of yards and put oh, okay. in native plants that are good for bees. Yeah, that's so. true. So they're just going to be gardeners, I guess, because you're gonna be right. Gardeners. We need more we're, diversity. We're changing it all. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to be on the, the concrete breakup team. I just go slam concrete. <laughs> I get super jacked. Yeah. Just like, no more concrete. <laughs> the very words rich and poor have no meaning and have been forgotten. We're finally all middle class. <laughs> <laughs> the American dream. <laughs> Brought to you by communism. You got all your material needs taken care of. You work two hours in return. And then you just chill the rest of the day. Commune has no enemies for all the neighboring peoples and nations have long since organized themselves in a similar similar fashion. And the world is a federation of communes. Hell yeah. The younger generation does not know what war is. Cool if true. Boeing and Northrop Grumman are in shambles, but <laughs> they're listening to this like, no, no, my defense contracting. Oh no, my life's work. That would kind of suck if that was your life's work was like building fucking missile systems. Oh, dude. Yeah. I, I was reading a tweet. Someone was like, I met someone and like we were going around saying what we do. And he said he like works for a defense contractor. And I was like, whoa, so you're like a war criminal. And nobody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, it was super awkward. I'm like, yeah, what do you even say to that person? Like, cool. <laughs> yeah. You just act Oof. like you were kidding. <laughs> right. Okay, bye. (laughs) Awkward. I just wanted to end here, this little quote. So they're kind of comparing, like, you know, they're asking about the war and stuff like that. And they're so shocked by what they hear. They're saying, like, wow, that must have been really tough and stuff. They're like, well, I guess we have our work, too. You know, we're still contending with nature and everything. The young people held their heads high, facing the future boldly. They turned their eyes to the stars and the dark black cloth of the sky, visible through the wide windows of the festival hall. You achieved your aims, and we will achieve ours. You subdued the social forces, we will subdue nature. Sing with us, Red Grandmother, the new hymn of the struggle with the elements. You know the tune, it is your own international, but the words are new. They call us to struggle, to achieve things, to move forward. Let the fir tree burn out. Our festival is in front of us. Our festival is a life of endeavor and discovery. No, they're just doing Star Trek. That that was fucking Star Trek shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we're going to new places, like looking at the stars, like goddamn. That was totally cool. Yeah, I really recommend that one. That one warmed my little heart and also broke it a little because I'm like, well, we did not do that in 1970. Yeah. Cool if we did though. <laughs> Sorry, we let you down. <laughs> We'll reset the date, try it again in 2070, and just kind of go from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really good, though. That's a great note to end on, too. Like, that's a positive thing. I know. We never do that. I was so excited when I realized I could do that. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh. All right. Colin Ty. Uh, overall, I think not that many misses. Yeah. You know, everyone, you know, has a post or two they'd wish they could delete. Uh, and she deleted a lot of her posts, actually. But um, she did. She that went being through. one of her deletable posts <laughs> is deleting her posts. But but yeah, I don't know. She was she was cool. And 
uh, impressive in that I thought I knew a fair amount about her and didn't really know a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and really didn't have the right impression as to how central she was to leadership of the Bolsheviks. I mean, in the thick of the revolution. Yeah, that's what I was most surprised by. Like I had done some cursory searches of her before, even like the first draft of my outline, you know, going just from the Wikipedia was very like, all right, she like did this women's department and it kind of fell off when Stalin got in power. Like it was cool and everything. But like once I watched that documentary, I was really like, okay, I need to do some deeper dives into some of this other stuff. And like, it was really cool. Like how central she was to those struggles uh and i'm like how many people don't know about this because like that's pretty crazy yeah (laughs) running arms for lenin like that's fucking bonkers yeah (laughs) no small feet (laughs) yeah yeah badass and yeah she's got to be one of my faves now she's up there hell yeah all right my voice is gone i talked too much it was good you did great hey thanks i was reserving my voice because i'm still Adjusting to oh, the start yeah. of the year, but <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be rough. That's okay. I'm tired after two hours. You gotta do it all fucking day. Yeah, it's it's not bad, but if only you were in commune ten, then you'd be done after two hours. Yeah, I need to. We need to get on that. Uh, I'm tired of teaching all day. <laughs> I want to teach for two hours, mm-hmm. and then we can, if we do that, you know, I'm gonna bribe you listeners here. Um, if we do that, we will be able to devote ourselves to what we will, which mm. will be like giving you extra Patreon episodes and stuff, mm. you know, or extra commune episodes. They wouldn't be Patreon. Just free? They would just be extra episodes. <laughs> extra episodes that are broadcasted. Yeah. <laughs> in the commune. Every commune has their own like leftist podcast that's just like, like everyone has like, this is the left opposition podcast. And this is like the party. Of, you know, oh, like, yeah. We'd have factional podcasts. Yeah. I was thinking more of a harmonious thing, more of like a community call in radio thing or something. That'd be good, too. Just like, what do you think about this new ordinance we're looking at? Yeah. Like, I think it's fucking bullshit. We should be able to draw dicks on all the walls. <laughs> yeah. But don't you think some of the walls you should not? No, all of the walls. <laughs> Maybe not the one in front of the school. Especially the oh, one in school. We could put an anatomical diagram on it to make it okay. It's fine. Oh, one day. One day we'll get to Commune 10 and look at the stars and the dicks. To the stars and to the dicks. Until then. <laughs> You're stuck with us here. Next week, we'll shoot that shit. Yeah. Um, I'll catch you later then. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to 
local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.